Barton Fink, Barton Fink, Barton Fink, Barton Fink. Welcome to Cohen Brothers Brothers, where myself, Michael Swam, and my good pal over there, Abe Epperson, talk about Barton Fink every episode. <laughs> no, <laughs> but we've been very excited for this one. Uh, this is the fourth episode of Cohen Brothers Brothers, where we will cover the fourth Cohen Brothers film. It hails from 1991. Yep, and it's called Fart and Bink. Fart and Bink. Oh, fuck, fuck. All right, we got to redo this whole thing from the top. Fart and Bink. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I think considered, widely considered, their least accessible film, maybe until A Serious Man. It's pretty inside baseball, because uh, mm-hmm. it's about a writer uh, who's the toast of New York, and uh, he gets invited to Hollywood. And it sucks the life out of him. Yes, but it's super artsy and am- artistically ambitious. And whereas we dis- d- discussed last episode on the Miller's Crossing episode, that was their attempt to show that they can work within the studio system. This is literally, literally a movie they made while taking a break from that. Mm-hmm. So imagine this as them indulging themselves with a breath of fresh air and like, getting as artsy as they fucking want yeah yeah like, right i mean we're not getting we're not just miller's crossing filmmakers we're not just gonna make gangster movies right no 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 you, exactly you're fine so let's jump right into diegesis which we have decided in this case we're kind of gonna rush through a because it's a fairly simple plot but b because pedagogy is really where barton fink shines that's where it's resides. yeah and if you're unfamiliar with the show we do Analyze all Coen Brothers films through three spectra, diegesis, pedagogy, and howdy do that. Diegesis being what happens in the film and how and like the kinds of shots, the storyline, etc., etc. Uh pedagogy is what what does it make you feel? What is wh- where does it tie to philosophy and metaphysics? And then howdy do that's fun trivia. So let's cram through that diegesis. Abe, you were saying. We have this Toast of Broadway. Toast of Broadway, uh, writing a play about the common man's plight. So he's not just a screenwriter and a playwright, but specifically his niche is writing about like very humble tales about like working class. And it does really well. He's at the top of his game. Getting great reviews. Talks to his agent. Yeah. Who, uh, Tony Shalhoub. And no, 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 no. Oh, that's later. Sorry, that's Tony Shalhoub ain't around yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's you're putting uh, the Shalhoub before the horse. I'm putting Shalhoub before the horse. Um, but no, his agent. He has dinner with his agent, who literally, literally reads aloud. Yeah, and is like, there's a, you know, two influential people there, like a husband and wife, who are like. We loved it, you know, like you need to be out more. and Right. But they themselves like, have like obvious signs of opulent wealth yeah. on them. And, and they tell really vapid jokes and yes. they obviously only enjoyed it on the surface level. So what do we got? We got an artist who wants to make a difference and, and he feels like, fuck yeah. the reviews. This is all phony. How can I find true art? In a precursor to Llewellyn Davis, in a, you know. Llewellyn in a, Davis, Llewellyn yeah. Llewellyn Davis. Uh, Llewellyn is... Uh, no country. No country. I always mix them up. Lewin Davis. Uh, the idea is that he he's getting all the success, but he's still not happy with it. Right. And so I think the reason that ultimately he decides to go to Hollywood mm-hmm. is not just that, because as his agent says, just you know, 
right after you get a bunch of money, come back and you can do whatever you want. Yeah, his agent basically the, is pitching right him now on, is the time. I have a connection because you just had this big hit. They'll let you write screenplays. Dude, the way you write, like if you just lower your standards and don't care about them, you could knock about five, knock out five in two years, take mm -hmm. the money, and it would pay for you to write as many ambitious artistic experimental plays as you want for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. Because it's where the money is right now. Moving pitches. Uh, so, and this is, I know I said in uh, Miller's Crossing podcast that that is Totoro's triumph. Uh, this movie is his movie through and through. Yes, John Turturro is the titular Fink. Yeah, he's the Fink. <laughs> and uh, he can't connect with the world of pitchers. Like, he does not like producers. He does not have a, um, a good way to interact with, like, even the elite, as we saw in, like, mm -hmm. in terms of, like, New York, or even the theaters. You know, he just doesn't yeah. understand that nor does he understand truly as we reveal even though he thinks he does he doesn't understand the common man either yeah so he's well, this fish out of water he's just a tourist with the typewriter he comes to la they put him up in a very creepy empty hotel uh i forget uh, the Hotel Earl. That's right. The, the Hotel Earl. Earl. Yeah, and, and the film basically oscillates between him in his hotel room at the Hotel Earl, struggling to write the screenplay for his first assignment that mm -hmm. he was given, and having meetings out and about in Hollywood and on the studio lot. And he, uh, so he first interacts with the hotel by arriving, and there's just no one there. And then he dings the bell, and Chet, played by Buscemi, mm -hmm. uh, in Literally comes yeah. out of the ground. In a classic Scarlet Bellboys outfit. Yeah. Uh, and so he comes out of the ground. Mm -hmm. and Like a trap door. For some reason in, in this hotel, the apparently the floors go down or something. Because everything is... He, he presses the down button to get to his floor. So he's literally living in a basement. Um... And doesn't have windows. Yeah, he does. He to his room def his room totally has windows. So it just doesn't make sense. I'm calling bullshit on the going down thing. Chet comes from underground, but the elevator goes up to the sixth floor. We see skyline outside his window. I guarantee. I thought it was like minus six, but no. But I think what you're getting at is: Are we spilling the beans on that already? I mean, he the hell connection. The hell connection. Okay, I guess let's just do that then. I mean, you're yeah. you're throwing my whole perceived we can uh, just, order out. We can cut this out and just no, jump we right won't. back. We always say that, and then they hear us saying that because we don't do no, it. No, I cut it out. But this is good. Uh, yeah, so very popular, prevalent theory that I think bears lots and lots of merit, and we'll unpack even more, is that the hotel that most of the movie takes place in is hell, and. Uh, you're already throwing out clues. Chet's like a demon. He comes from underground. The elevator thing, I think, is even better than that. It's a screenplay thing. So when he first goes to his room, it's on the sixth floor, and he goes and talks to this old blind elevator operator, and the lines go, where to? Six. Six? Or Sorry, because so he goes, where to? Six. And then the elevator operator goes, Six, and he pulls the lever, and then the elevator arrives, and he says six, because they're at six. So, so six, six, six. <laughs> Which, what does that mean? Well, it's, <laughs> it's like, if you needed a tip-off, 
the hotel is hell. And Hotel Earl just LA sounds like in a general corruption of hell. Burning yeah. inferno for him. Um, a repeated motif is the room is so hot that the wallpaper peels and they use red wallpaper glue. So it's like the slime that clings to the walls of hell. Like mm-hmm. is just his room is hellish as well. Um, but as far as just ramming through the plot fast, I don't he meets John Goodman's character, Charlie. Yes. He has a, a neighbor who's noisy. And so he, uh, yeah, he knocks on his door and he tells him, can you keep it down? And then they share a drink. Yeah, well, Totoro actually, because he's a coward, calls the front desk and says, my neighbor's making noise. And you hear, because the walls are so thin, you hear Chet call John Goodman, who has been loudly sobbing, which is very disturbing at first. You just don't know why. He's just this crying man. And he goes, well, who called? Okay. And he hangs up. You can hear this through the wall. And then, and then you hear his door open and close and footsteps and a knock on John Turturro's door. It's really funny. And John Turturro like, debates, can I not answer, get out of this somehow? But he answers the door. Yeah. And it turns out to be John Goodman, Charlie Meadows, who... So I'm going to try to... The way I'm going to try and get through the plot fast is we spent a lot of time in the hotel and we spent a lot of time in Hollywood and they sort of alternate. But let's just do the hotel stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So without getting into detail, they repeatedly drink together in John Turturro's room. Mm-hmm. And John Turturro bitches about how he has writer's block on this shitty screenplay, B movie he's supposed to write. Yeah. He can't get behind it because he wants art to be real. And, and Charlie is an say. insurance man. Yeah. And Charlie's an insurance man and really is a common man and sort of just comforts him they become confidants yeah. a bit at a time they're his only friend he says charlie listens mostly and barton yeah. talks mostly yeah. which is key later um so in hollywood land why don't you cover what's going on? that's when he gets hooked up with tony shalhoub and goes through the system so he goes through the system uh of like he's basically now a part of a studio where they're just like just write this just write this wrestling picture you know this boxing picture and he doesn't know how to write that. He's like, I've never done anything. Like, I don't know what that is. And they were like, oh, you know what? You you know what you should do? You should just watch some, uh, we're shooting. Which, by the way, I think it says Colin on the slate. And mm-hmm. Roger Deakins as uh, cinematographer for the footage that Barton Fink watches. Oh, so they show Barton footage, footage of, of a different, different wrestling one movie that's being To give him ideas... And the cinematographer of Barton Fink, Roger Deakins, is right. also credited as the cinematographer of the And this is the, the first time the that uh, Roger Deakins has penned a uh, you know, DP of uh, Coen Brothers. This is the Been first the time. DP, yeah. So Sonnenfeld is now off doing Adam's Family, <laughs> and Roger Deakins is now arrived on scene. But anyway. We've shifted into D. Yeah, so uh, it's Jack Lipnick. Yeah, Lipnick, yeah. Is yeah. the head of... Uh, Capital Pictures, Capital the fictional Pictures. studio. Yeah. <laughs> and he's the one who personally took an interest and was like, oh, this guy who's the toast of Broadway, hire him out here. I want yeah, him to write we some need, pictures. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically you have this basic A plot, which is Barton Fink can't write a story. Uh, he, in fact, he stares at a typewriter, writes... Classic yeah, writer's block Classic scenes, writer's block. Staring at the he, blank page. Staring at the blank page. He writes a single sentence about, you know, New York tenements and just can't move on uh, until, I guess, 
uh, so there's not there's like stagnation, I guess. There's stagnation. Until he meets the middle part is different WP. tactics. That's what I was gonna say is he sort of pursues different tactics to try and break the writer's block. Right. That's the middle of the movie. And then circumstance allows that he's in the bathroom and he hears vomiting. Uh, w. B. Mayhew, who's played by John Mahoney, mm-hmm. who's just and uh, ridiculously. A ridiculous drunk. Yeah. Uh, and he just hears him vomiting. They are washing their hands at, you know, the uh, at the sink. Yeah. And uh, he introduces himself. Uh, and Barton Fink realizes that this is Mayhew. Who, and it turns out is one of his, his favorite, favorite novelists. Authors. Yeah, novelists. And he's like, of course help you can me, help, help me. me. Because... Yeah. You are a novelist, which is a serious, real thing, and now you have to do this bullshit. I'm a serious playwright, and I have to do I gotta this write bullshit. The boxing. What do I do? Yeah. yeah, and yeah, Mayhew is such a ridiculous drunk, like public drunk. He's this well-spoken Southern gentleman in a fine three-piece suit mm-hmm. who puts a hanky down on the floor to vomit, then comes out, takes out a fine silver flask, and chugs more alcohol yeah. immediately. Yeah. Um, so this begins a very strange like relationship basically just series of picnics where they chat yeah between fink mayhew and his secretary slash lover audrey audrey yeah who barton fink is originally romantically interested in but she lets it be known that she's so yeah now it's like a hemingway nod where it's just like he keeps visiting him it might as well be the french riviera you know like they keep meeting and he keeps having this kind of tryst, this uh, mm-hmm. involvement with her understanding Mayhew as best that he can. Because Mayhew's because so Because he drunk. wants to get an access to like what it, that novelist spirit, that like that that ineffable uh, you know, right. cherub that gives you art or genius. He wants to tap into it. And a defining feature of Fink is that he romanticizes it. He thinks there's like a muse or a goddess and he just has to reach it. Right. And so he, a lot of those scenes turn into philosophical arguments between he and Mayhew about what writing is and how you write and where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And Mayhew doesn't agree anymore because he's a fucking broken down, depressed drunk. And he says, I write purely to escape that life is the shittiest thing ever. Mm -hmm. And that devastates Barton. So they have these long arguments about it. Meanwhile, on the emotional, personal level, Barton is just slowly realizing that he's intensely abusive to Audrey. And it's that classic uh, thing where it's none of his business, but he's like, how can you let him treat you like that? And she's sort of got this battered, battered spouse syndrome where she defends Mayhew as a genius and says, like, when he's kind, he's so kind, yeah. like, you don't understand him. Um, and he's like, what's to understand? Like he literally takes a piss in the park while they're at a picnic and she like comes and calmly try to comfort him. Right. And he just smacks her in the face and says, breach my levy at your own risk. Like, meaning, I don't know, stay away from me or I get to hit you. And Barton of course flips out and she's like, no, you don't understand him. So there's all this stuff at the same time as the everyday he keeps meeting with increasingly stressful people at the studio, including a great, really ball buster guy played by Tony Shalhoub. And all you really need to know is the tension keeps increasing. Like this movie is more and more important. He keeps promising how great it's going to be, but he has nothing. And it's getting to the point where finally he's supposed to meet with Lipnick and pitch him the story. 
and he has to tell him the beginning, middle, and end, and he has nothing, and it's at tomorrow at nine o'clock. Yeah, and of course, uh, because of magic, just he's just a special boy, I guess. Uh, Lipnick is totally f- like fine with that. He's like, this is a writer. You know. Well, yeah, we haven't gotten because before he actually has the meeting, this the, is key. The de- Audrey is Audrey, yeah. So, so they've he's he earned out romantically involved. He gets Audrey. It's because it's the night of over. It's the night before the meeting. Yeah, and he calls Audrey and he says, "I need help. I need help fleshing out the story. Can't you just?" And she comes over begrudgingly. The grand productive days. Yeah, and he says. Mayhew's written like 10 wrestling pictures, which is what I'm supposed to write. Can you just tell me some of the plot lines he had and we can like wave those? And she, it's made clear that she basically is the writer. That's so it comes out in conversation that she knows this all inside and out because she wrote his screenplays for him because he's too drunk. Then Barton asks, how long have you been writing for him? And it turns out she's the main writer of like his last four novels. Yeah. So he, then immediately turns against Mayhew. He's devastated. He's he devastated, Mayhew, but he, he hates Mayhew. Which is weird to me because, I, although it points to one of his flaws, which is why does it matter where the art came from as right. long as it exists? W, but it does to him. W he's, goddamn P Mayhew, yeah. He's petty like that. Yeah, and yeah. then but then he. it's also Audrey is now who he actually... So now, not only are you not a drunk, Audrey, and you're a genius. You're a genius, and you're the reason that I love. You're one of the reasons I love writing. So he's obviously in love with her. They spend the night. Yes, he wakes up in the morning, and she's, she's covered in blood. Covered in blood <laughs> and dead and dead. And so he knocks on Charlie Meadows' door mm-hmm. and says, "You got to help me." John Goodman says, well, let's talk in your room, which we'll come back later, because I just think you're not allowed in John Goodman's room. Mm-hmm. Um, comes into his room and says, sees it, is obviously freaked the fuck out like you would like, be. I didn't do it. I didn't. You got to believe But he does. Me. He instantly believes, because they have formed a bit of a rapport. He's like, Barton, you're my friend. I believe you. But don't you see? The cops won't believe you. This looks so bad. Right. And like, and did you have sex with her? Yeah. They have ways to test that, man. Like, yeah. So he says, it's, you just let your fucked. You just let your pal Charlie deal with it. And he does. He gets rid of the body and we never see it again. Somehow it's gone. And while Barton just waits in his room freaking out. Yeah. Basically, Charlie comes back and says he has to leave on a sales trip for a few days. And Barton's like, I can't handle not having backup here. And he says, yes, you can. Just stay in your room. Don't leave your room. I'll be back in three days. Also, because this will come back later. Here's a package of personal belongings. So it's like a mystery box. Uh, the size of a head. It's just shit I don't want to take with me because I don't want to risk losing it. Can I keep it in your room? Just don't open it. Just don't open so it. So he leaves him a mystery box. He leaves for three days. Meanwhile, this is the scam scene you alluded to earlier, so why don't you tell it? The meeting comes Lipnick. where he has to tell Lipnick what his wrestling movie is supposed to be about. And remember... He's in shock. Like at this meeting, he's like, he just saw a dead body. He, yeah, he thinks he might actually have murdered her. If he, he did doesn't it believe in he a did, fit or blacked out or something. But something yeah. happened, and who killed her? Right, right. Who's I'm the only one in the room. Um, so yeah, so Michael Lerner uh, passes him over to Lou Breeze. Is that Lipnick? Ja- Michael Lerner is Lipnick? Michael Lerner is Jack Lipnick, and Jack Lipnick. John Polito is Lou Breeze. Yeah. 
And John Polito, who you remember from Miller's Crossing, is yep. Casper. The hi hat. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, the hell with the story. A writer in a room, and I'm asking what the goddamn story is, Jack Libnick, the producer. We need more heart and motion pitches. We're expecting great things. So all of Fink's insecurities are now coming into pass. Uh, he's at his feet. There's a dead body. He can't write. The thing that he was hoping would help solve his writing is now dead. And, and made uh, writing such a low priority. Like and now so he's now wanted for murder. Yeah. The film takes a sharp stakes turn. Right. It's no longer about... Well, I mean, it... It is still. It is yeah, still yeah, yeah, about yeah. it. And by the way, I just wanted to point out, just because it'll come back later, uh, above his typewriter, uh, he has a soul picture, and it's a like a very like postcard version of L.A., which is just a woman in like a bikini with an umbrella looking off into the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And he kind of treats it like a muse, like it's like freedom. And we hear the sounds of waves Whenever he every looks time at we, it, yeah. we hear a very calming score and the sound of waves crashing. So it's his oasis in the room when right. he's feeling too stressed. Right. And then what happens next? Does What happens next is the... Become prolific? Well, or? no. He uh, In the Lipnick scene, yeah. he comes up with a quote-unquote clever way to get out of it, which he bluffs, basically, and just says, uh, you know, the story is so clear in my head... I don't want to put it into here. words yeah. until it's the right words because then it could come out wrong and those wrong words will be stuck in my head. And John Polito, who's Libnick's assistant, goes, are you fucking kidding us? We have like a million writers who could do this. We've given you more time than we said we would. We paid the flight. Are you kidding me? You're sitting here in front of the president of the studio. You fucking do what he says. And then very surprisingly, Mr. Lipnick fires that guy and kisses Barton Fink's feet. Yeah. Yeah, Lipnick, the head of the studio, kisses his feet, and he says, that's how much we care about artists. And that's an interesting dichotomy because the studio is portrayed as totally vapid and that's shallow. Right, that's right, Yeah, Michael Lerner on his knees kissing kisses his, his feet. feet. Yeah. But Lipnick at the same time constantly does say the right things in the sense that he says, why do you think we hired you? We want truth in the film. We want, we want that Barton Fink feel, that yeah. reality. And so he kisses his feet, which ironically only puts more pressure. You know, it's like, well, now the president kissed your feet. How do you think he's going to react when you finally right. turn in? Nothing. Nothing. So after he comes back from the meeting, he's now back in his hotel room. Right. And, and Charlie's, the detectives Charlie's are gone. Yeah. yeah. Charlie has to go. So he gets a call saying detectives are here to question you. Yeah. Yeah. And so he answers the call. Uh, and he's a writer and has a very terse scene with very problematic detectives. Right. Right. Yeah. Which I think we'll read some quotes later. Uh, but then returns to his, Oh, Oh, well, well you have to say what the detectives reveal to him, right? What? That Audrey's missing or what? No, that Charlie Meadows. is not Charlie, oh, Charlie Meadows. Meadows is this. This is the whole other thing. guy. Yeah. And he's a mass murderer essentially. So you think they're questioning, to catch him but they're actually questioning because they're looking for john for goodman charlie yeah and john goodman aka charlie meadows whose real name is carl munt, munt. aka madman munt madman munt. and they show him like is a, a notorious serial killer and decapitator of people yeah yeah so yeah that 
box clearly is a head. That now colors your it's perception. Clearly, of the box. Audrey's head is that it could be Audrey's head predating the movie Seven by so fucking long. What's this in the technique? Box? What's in the um, box? Well, apparently being prolific because then he takes that and writes a and screenplay. And I wonder if there's some perverse thing there that Audrey's head is his muse. Yeah. That, um, I was thinking that as well because, like, that's the part that he's in love with is, is her head, her, her not brain. her body. Fuck! That's true, and we just found it organically. Her body gets destroyed, and he realizes yep. that's not what he really valued anyway. He gets the head back, and that's all he needed. And then that propels him forward <sighs> in front of the typewriter. Female character used literally as an object. Yeah, but, literally as an object. Um, but that's Barton Fink's fault. Right. So he, like, shakes the box like you would shake a Christmas present. Without speaking, you kind of assume he assumes it's Audrey's head. He sets it on his desk, and then he can write the screenplay. To the point where he hears the couple next door fucking real loud, and he just puts in earplugs and keep typing. Like, he goes on a bender. It doesn't matter. And he finishes the whole screenplay. And I think this is a key point. Uh, He, well, actually, I'll bring that up in pedagogy. So, he's really happy with it. He yeah. thinks it's the finest thing he's ever written, and he really he calls, thinks, yeah, he, he thinks he took agent. this B wrestling movie and actually pulled off a miracle and embedded amazing truth that's going to blow everyone away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now he's got his screenplay in hand, and to celebrate because he's so jazzed, he goes to a Navy USO dance. That's right. That's and I right. think it's an important scene because yet again he's literally just finished writing a Which screenplay. Which is just confidence. Well, he's just finished writing a screenplay that he thinks will will do justice to and finally bring dignity to the common man. And, and he ends up being such a pretentious asshole at the dance, going like, I'm a writer, you Navy moron, that the Navy guys kick him out of the yeah, dance. which you can't get any more common man than a Then soldiers. a bunch of Navy dudes here on leave having one night of fun. Yeah. And he literally starts talking about how superior he is to them. Yeah. After he's proud of this screenplay he wrote that's going to bring dignity to the plight of the common right, man. Right, exactly. Um, so that's basically just an excuse to get him briefly out of the hotel. Because when he gets back to the hotel, Charlie is there. Mm-hmm. And he's read the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And from here, everything kind of goes off the rails. So Barton returns to his hotel room after the USO incident. And the detectives are in his room. And guess what? Barton sucks at crimes, so the giant blood stain from Audrey's body, he has made no attempt to clean it's from just the mattress. There. It's yeah. just there. And they're looking at it, and they go, hey, so your drunken friend Bill Mayhew was just found shotgunned and decapitated, which is basically what Munt does. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck? And he goes, you got to believe me, it's not me, but I think it's this guy, Charlie Meadows, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's him. And they go, well, and they start questioning him, and this is where it becomes supernatural because Barton Fink says, it's hot. Do you feel that? He's here. It's hot. Which, by the way, uh, every time that I the paint, uh, the, the wallpaper, wallpaper peels, peels from the heat. Only when John Goodman has been in the room or is or about to is, arrive or is right. in the room. Yes. So like when it gets even hotter, he's. I mean, well, we're getting in as John Goodman we're getting is the in pedagogy. devil. He's the devil. Yeah. yeah. Point is, and we literally move on to the sequence where he's immersed in flames, yes. burning down the fucking hotel. So John Goodman steps out of a flaming elevator. The detectives walk into the hallway and go, put your hands up and put your suitcase down because he has his sales kit with him. He puts his suitcase down, withdraws a broken shotgun from it. So, you know, like folded to fit, mm-hmm. folds it up. 
boom, shotguns one of the detectives. The other one runs down the hall. He runs after him and flames magically keep pace with him, meaning yeah. like where uh. John Goodman runs, flames are. And uh, he ends up shotgunning that guy in the leg, screaming many, many times, I will show you the life of the mind, and we will unpack that in pedagogy. Mm-hmm. He screams that over and over and over as he approaches the guy, puts the shotgun up to his head, blows his head off. All right, we're closing in. He enters the room where Barton Fink is, and they sit down to basically have a chat with the devil, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he says that the reason he was a serial killer is he sees all the pain that everyone has in their lives, and he feels like he's helping them out. And he says, I just wish someone could help me out in the same way. Like, I'd be grateful if you killed me. Life is shit. Don't you see that? If you don't see that, you're not a common man. Right. And then he's, and then Barton Fink says, but why are you like, why am I alive in this hell? Why are you torturing me especially? Why didn't you kill me long ago? Why become friends with me? Why leave Audrey? Like, why me? And he says, because you don't listen. You don't but he screams listen. it as loud as he possibly can. Right, because this whole time, Fink has just been using him as an accessory, just and, like he did with yeah. Audrey. And not just around and Charlie, Fink represents the writer who wants to create truth but is not willing to imbibe truth from the world. The ultimate You egotist. don't listen, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's your sin. So then what's great is John Goodman just calmly gets up, goes out into the hotel, which is fully on fire, calmly unlocks his room, goes inside and shuts the door <laughs> and is in there. Yeah. It's also uh, funny that in the first sequence with uh, Charlie, uh, do you notice that when one of the first things that he says to Fink when they meet is that Charlie has an ear infection? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definite pedagogy material. Yeah. Um so I assume we'll mention diegesis stuff we skipped in pedagogy for context. Oh, yeah, yeah, because you know I mean? there's a whole, I mean, we didn't even we didn't bring mention up the mosquito. Geisler or Tony, Sh- right. Tony Shalhoub. So, but to wrap up the plot, he rescues the two things that are most valuable from the room, specifically his script and Audrey's head. Yeah. And then uh, somehow gets out of the hotel. Again, it seems clearly supernatural because the level of fire it's on, like, he should be dying, and he walks at a calm pace down the hall down and then the leaves the hotel. Yeah, yeah. Cut to final meeting with Lipnick, who is now stepping down as head of the studio because he's been made a colonel in the army because World War II's happening. You're right. And uh, he goes like, oh, I read the script. Yeah, I don't think it's very good. We're probably going to pass. So after all that, it's, the, you know, it's, again, an echo of Inside Lewin Davis. It's the kiss off. It's the brush it's, off. And he says, he even shames him. He's like, who cares about this fictional bullshit? I'm going to go out and save real people in the world in the war. Um, basically drops the facade, finally tears into Barton Fink and says, you're always a phony piece of shit. I can't believe I kissed your feet. You're worth nothing. I could buy 10 writers like you that think they know truth. It's all bullshit. Get the fuck out of here. And from now on, I have a standing order we will purchase every screenplay you ever write and we will never, never produce any yeah. one of them. And that's his the doomed forever. Yeah. That's his doomed forever. Because I don't know if you, you knew You come this. into my home and complain that I'm making too much noise? Yeah. Which is what Charlie says. Oh. Which I think 
That's why Charlie, when he says, why'd you take an interest in me initially, devil? He says, you fucking came into my home and then accused me of take, making up too much noise in my room because I was crying. Like, you're yeah. so uh, insensitive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in a, even though he does at one point say, Heil Hitler. like Yeah, very uh, cheerfully. It's, it's, he does have a point that Burton Fink is kind of uh, a sinful... I think the Heil Hitler is to remind you, but like the devil's still the devil also. Also, uh, Munt is a very German, is a German name and Fink is Jewish. So it could just... And World War II is upon us. It could be an insight into the time period and all that, right? That makes sense. Now we're... Oh, you're right. I'm not calling it quite Mm -hmm. yet. But they... uh, Heil Hitler is actually very time appropriate for a German serial killer to say. You're right. 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 Um, so just to parse out the very ending, uh, he is now the proverbial doomed soul because I want people who didn't know this to know this about the classic studio system in the forties. And this is one of the reasons WB Mayhew is a irredeemable drunk. They could get you under contract for like 30 pictures or 10 years, whichever comes first and they're unbreakable and you're not allowed to write other things. So he couldn't even write plays until he has to fulfill this contract. Right. So he's trapped forever. And that was a real thing in the 40s mm-hmm. um, in the studio system. So he, uh, the very, the denouement is we don't know what's going to happen with his life. He's basically fucked. He goes for a walk on the beach. He sees a beautiful be, woman in a bikini. The Picard. Uh, yeah, he's the postcard. He sits down at the beach and the, uh, he chats a bit with her, but then the shot resolves and lingers long enough for you, the audience, to realize, oh, the postcard happened in front of him. The image literally just is, came, yeah. and it's the same as that postcard that he used to look at above his typewriter. He's just a, it's Plato's cave. In a now, way. because it's time for pedagogy, we can start asking, well, why? What does that mean? What does everything mean? God, yeah. there's so much what does that mean in this movie. Uh, I want to jump in. First off, I want to start yeah, where with Where do this. we start? Uh, the, the title of Barton Fink's play in New York is called Bear Ruined Choirs, mm-hmm. and it's from a Shakespeare sonnet. Number 73, for people who are wondering like if that. I did my research. Uh, the first four lines of which are, that time, uh, that, that time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon these bows and shake against the cold. Bare ruined choirs were late, the sweet bird sang. Um, I think that sonnet is about someone who's admired, it kind of is like, like in a way, it's an Ouroboros. Uh, Beach Fink and New York Fink are these guys who are glimpsing something that is actually beautiful. He is the choir that is ruined. Like, they're trying to bear their souls somehow. Various people he meets, you mean? I think he represents as the playwright. Right, and you're saying he the characters everything. he meets yes. bear their yes. souls to him, and nothing and gets he just, through. He doesn't get it. And so then when he goes and, like, a choir speaks about it in his screenplays yes. and his conversations, he misses the point. And I think that's super underscored by the fact that he thinks this is the best, most important work he's ever written. So he's an artist who starts with the noble goal of like digging deep and making a masterpiece. Right. And at the end, we don't get to see his screenplay, but we know that he truly feels it is 
but there's very tiny details that make it clear that his screenplay is a piece of shit because right. his play uh, on Broadway that was a big hit, the opening stage direction mentions that you can hear the cry of the fishmongers. Right. And in his finished screenplay, the only things you see are the beginning and first and last page. And if you look closely, you can see that in the across the pages, he you can hear the again. cry of the fishmongers. So he uses that again. Not a big deal. But then the last line of the play, when we hear it in Broadway is, we'll be hearing from that guy. And I don't mean a postcard. And you actually can see in the last line of his screenplay, when Charlie's flipping through it, he, the same last line is used in his film. Do you think... So he only regurgitates himself, and he thinks it's important because it has the tone of being important, but he has brought nothing new do you to think, say. Do you think that's the Coen brothers, again, throwing out the fact that we mentioned in the last podcast as well, they took an aside from Miller's Crossing to write this in three weeks... Do you think this is the Coen brothers bearing their insecurity that they only had one great film in them? In them, Maybe. What I got really palpably this watch was I thought it was... I, I mean, there's no way that he, he's not them. Yeah. Because when you write about... They're, they're New York. They came and when from you, New York. And when you do a vanity project about the craft of writing, you're, of course, only talking yeah, about your relationship. Charlie Kaufman-esque. Yeah. So... I thought it was saying that uh, there's. I thought they were laying out the double-edged sword again, nihilistically, of how you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, because people throughout the film puncture Barton Fink in a real way when he says art is important and there's something uh, transcendent about art, and I want to experience that and somehow connect with my fellow human beings and like change this universal subconscious. <clears throat> and there are scenes where the Coens seem to say, and you could do that if you had listened, or like, that is a thing that exists, and it is admirable, and of course that's probably what in some measure drives them to create. But at the same time, there's people who constantly say, and this is so true from us having worked at Cracked and comedy so much. Um, you think you're like better than someone else or your art is realer because you write about serious shit that creates insight. But I think real writers who've worked a long time know this. Writing a joke is just as hard and it's just practice. So like you could sit down and practice comedy writing until you can write jokes when you need to. Believe it or not, you can get to the point where you can write shit that sounds super deep and wise whenever you need to. Yeah. And Lipnick says, you think your voice is like one of a kind? I have 12 writers who can write the Barton Fink voice. Who gives a shit about you individually? Yeah. And so I really felt it was the Cohen saying both is like, we really dream of lofty artistic goals. Doesn't that make us pretentious pieces of shit? Don't we ruin the choir? Don't we fucking suck? Yeah, and yet it is why we make movies. So, so like, what up? Whatever. What's your interpret? Because <laughs> here's my big question that I wanted to ask you, and I've been holding it back because this is my big question about you as you know an author. Yourself. Nine and a half inches. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> the mosquito, mm -hmm. bloodsucker. Got it. Know what's happening. Also, it recurs. Heat. It's just also sickness, malaria, all like it's a, the annoyances in his brain, the voice, the the writer's block. Like it comes back is, when he's more but, agitated. Okay, so what do you think the Coen Brothers have more disdain for through the penning of this film? 
is the mosquito LA or is the mosquito Barton Fink? I thought the mos- Repre- symbolically. I thought symbolically the mosquito was the tiny voice in his head that is telling him, "You know you're full of shit," and keeping him from writing because, like deep down, he knows he doesn't have anything to say yet. So you think? So in other words, that's why LA isn't wrong. I Your think, interpretation, L.A., is wrong. I think L.A. is wrong, half wrong and half right. Like, I think you see Lipnick both be a shallow executive with nothing to add and, and other times actually say things that Barton Fink should listen to. Yeah. And I do think the Coen brothers respect uh, uh, traditional films because they've made lots of, like, not fully traditional, but you know what I mean. They and grew they, up on them. And yeah. they respect crazy indie shit. They yeah. see both. I mean, they grew up on Sturges, you know? Exactly. Like- um, and I, the reason I thought that about the mosquito is the mosquito finally dies when he slaps, slaps Audrey's, Audrey's dead, dead body. Yeah. It lands on Audrey's naked back in the morning, and that's how he finds out he's dead is he kills a mosquito, yeah. which, of course, very obvious symbolism is now he has blood on his hands. But the, I think the subtler layer is that his writer's block is gone now because he's, that's when he becomes prolific. Yeah. I mean, it's all like to me, this, this film is very much like I'm surprised they didn't do like they did with O Brother where they're like based on Homer's Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised they didn't do this with Dante's Inferno uh, just because he's literally a pilgrim. Mm-hmm. He's a tourist with a typewriter. Right. And everything metaphorical in this movie is about drainage. It's about a drain, yeah. a mosquito, ear infection. blood leaving a body. Yeah, having to seep ear infection pus so from if, your ear. If you have everything is leaking. If you haven't seen it, just to give the context, um, yeah, an ongoing, basically a recurring bit, you could think of it as, is in their repeated hangouts. Charlie John Goodman has a worsening ear infection. Yeah, and uh, it's a it's a it's a fairly obvious symbol, but it's a great one. It's like a neoclassical like look how ugly right. it is. Well, and it's also the pus in his ear is the ear that John Turturro is always talking into. Right. So yeah. so it's this fucking pretentious bullshit you keep spewing at him is actually causing him pain. You act like you are the you know the common man, but all you do is right. put you know hemlock in there. And once he starts getting mystical and saying like ominous things, he does say, you know, I hear everything in this building. It all comes through the pipes. So it's like the devil hears all this bullshit. I know all your sins. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. In other words, uh, and to not to get biblical on it, but, uh, I mean, he literally, it's biblical. It's biblical. I mean, he reads Genesis, uh, like in a lot of ways, Goodman is both the devil and God, but it's like the justification of why there is a devil sympathy for the devil. One could say, I did wonder Uh, if he was God frequently, but then also, there's so many concrete clues. Like also in the screenplay, no one says the word right. hell. John Goodman says it in every scene constantly. Yeah. Just incidentally, like, oh, hell boy, I didn't mean to I do I got that. hell of stories. So yeah. it's like, he's the devil. But in a way, he seems like not the traditional devil. He's not as malevolent as the Christian devil. I mean, he's the great arbiter. You know, like he solves problems. He sells insurance. And uh, he's a madman. <laughs> I do. Th- that's the best job for the devil symbolically is to sell insurance because it's and his suspenders have dice on them also. Yes. It's uh, pretending that, that that there's safety in this life. He yeah. tries to convince people and get money and saying you're protected now. 
when he knows anyone could get could, decapitated yeah. at any time. In right? fact, I enjoy doing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Mad Men Month. Oh, and there's a great uh, just off screen uh, when he says he got a haircut. He didn't really care for it. He didn't tip the guy enough or the guy asked for like more or something. And he goes, that led to a disagreement. And it's a barber. And then later when the detectives are talking to him, they just mention, oh, yeah, he's killed all kinds of guys. Three days ago, we found a barber with no head. So mm-hmm. he obviously, that's the disagreement right, he referenced. Right. Um, you mentioned the Bible passage. Right. And since we parsed the, uh, the ruined choir verse, I also want to parse the Bible passage, which I did write down. So at one point in his writer's block, Barton turns to the Bible, which is just the standard hotel Bible in the room. He reads from Daniel 2, which references Nebuchadnezzar, which incidentally, the name of the book that Mayhew, the drunk, autographs for him is, is called Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar yeah. um, I don't exactly know why that connection is there, but I do think I understand the reason it's Daniel 2. So the passage is called The King's Dream. It's actually Daniel 2.30. And the passage is, And the king Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to the Chaldeans, I recall not my dream. If ye will not make me known, if ye will not make known unto me my dream and its interpretation, ye shall be cut in pieces, and of your tents shall be made a dunghill. And I think they found the perfect Bible verse to explain what a filmmaker's goal is. Like, yeah, I. Reflect upon me my works, but if you're wrong, fuck you. Right. And let's say I am the audience. I forgot a beautiful dream. Tell it to me, but also it has to be clear what it means. Help me decipher it. Yeah. And that's what Speak Barton truth. Fink fails to do is like, uh, make known unto me my dream, show me a movie, tell me a story, and its interpretation. Barton Fink can't do that. Yep. Well, then he's going to get cut in pieces and of his life shall be made a dunghill, which yeah, happens. Which happens. <laughs> yeah. Then he, uh, turns to the book of Genesis, and he sees, instead of the words of Genesis, his own screenplay. The text of his own screenplay has replaced the words from the book of Genesis. Yeah. Um, and I also, this is more of a stretch. I'd love if you have a theory on that. I do. Okay, what's your theory on that? Well, I mean, there, there's a reason why Daniel 2 is next to Genesis, because mm-hmm. Genesis is about the creation. So one is about the unwelcome remainder of not understanding creation so he hears that and it like an inner ear infection he can't hear it and then he goes about creating after he meets the detectives but this is all kind of like very close he goes to the bible first right Mm -hmm. i think genesis is more of a the reason that his words are genesis is because it's about like and let there be light kind of stuff you know like just the idea of like i'm now gonna create my own world i'm now gonna create my own screenplay but he didn't read the directions and the directions were i see you gotta you're about to do something great Mm -hmm. you're about to try to pen something that's going to speak truth but you got to understand its consequences and really speak the truth and understand it. He's just penning pulp. And rather now. than reading the Bible, which is a traditional way to absorb wisdom, whether or not you agree with that politically sure, or whatever, sure, sure. I think symbolically it fits. Again, he's not listening. 
He's not. Listening. He's just staring at the Bible, imagining how great it's going to be when he writes something that's so good it should basically be the Bible. So his <laughs> sin is that he thinks he's God. He projects his words onto it rather than imbibing right. from and, it yet again. And so the the preamble, the introduction, you know, Daniel two is yeah. basically explaining to him, "You're about to do this. You better do it right." And then, and then he, he doesn't. doesn't listen, and then writes it anyway. Yeah, and that's you come into my home. Right. And a recurring theme with Charlie as well as, as the ear infection develops is Charlie constantly says, uh, he'll say he'll basically Barton will do a a whole screed, very academic, high level vocabulary. That's very insulting to John Goodman in a backhanded way. Yeah. Like he'll say the common man has a dignity that transcends the metaphysics that has been handed down by the mindless caste system, I know this won't mean anything to you. Yeah. Um, and then John Goodman will try to interrupt and go, well, actually, I, I, I have a thought about that. Yeah. And he goes, I, well, I'm sure you do, but what I'm saying is I want to create a theater of the common man where the stories of the common hell, man... I have stories. <laughs> no, shut up, though, because I'm going to make the stories of the common man come to life. No, I know, I have stories. Right, I know, but shut up. Yeah, but yeah. you know what's the problem? Is these literary types. Who don't listen. Who yeah. don't listen, who don't understand. I understand. Yeah, you know, which like, is why when he screams at him in the best John Goodman scream ever, yeah. why me, what's my sin? You don't listen. listen. It's the payoff for all of that. The ear right, infection, right. all of that. You, uh, you, thought you, you thought you were my friend. You acted like you, like I liked you. And you thought you had the audacity to but think judgment can, comes for us all and you are not a good yeah. human. And I think it's you have the audacity to think your being an artist makes you somehow important. And you think that you can make important statements about life just because you're you, just because you're special without listening to people, without being tied into the community around you. Mm-hmm. Like, go fuck yourself. And uh, <laughs> I just want to, you know, throw in there mm-hmm. uh, those lines. The Grand Productive Days, W. Goddamn Phony Mayhew, mm-hmm. uh, a writer not coming to terms with a wrestling pitcher, says this. Uh, he's trying to make a point about you don't need to put your soul into everything. Mm-hmm. And he's also, you know, slapping Mayhew across the face for being an asshole, which yeah. he is. Yeah. But he doesn't realize that he's. Speaking about himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, sometimes you have to make a wrestling picture. The Cones note to the gangster picture of Miller's Crossing. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So they like, sometimes, uh, like, if we want to really take Daniel 2 to heart, in I, it sounds like both of our interpretations, uh, sometimes uh, you gotta look at, you gotta do things you don't wanna do and not pour your soul into it. Uh, because you're, because stories are bigger than you. And stay, you have to be humble. You can only you learn be from humble. a place. Sit down, bitch. Be humble. So you fucking ruined the choir. Yeah. So uh, just some good quotes, the more establishing of the hell stuff that I noticed this time is one of the first interactions with Chet is, are you a trans or a res? What? what? Transient or resident? I don't know. I'll be here indefinitely. He's a pilgrim. <laughs> but he'll be there indefinitely. It's mm-hmm. hell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and He's then in purgatory already. On the stationery, the Hotel Earl stationery, their slogan is a day or a lifetime. Right, right. <laughs> that's right. I noticed that. And, and then that like, shot's oh, so good because yeah. he goes up and he moves the pencil that's on top of the stationery and he sees that 
there's dust. The stationery has been there so long that there's a dust shape. It's a timeless. Pencil shaped no dust. one's been in this room. It's yeah. a room literally for him. Uh, <laughs> it's his cage. It's his prison. Uh, I want to talk about one of the greatest shots, I think, symbolically, that the Coen brothers have ever done. I mean, I'll throw a rock and, you know, I'll. <laughs> You'll change your mind later. I'll change Doesn't my matter. mind later. But uh, there is a shot in this movie that blows my mind Mm -hmm. and it's usually kind of crassly decided that it's an interpretation of sex uh which it is i think there's multiple levels but there's so many other levels and what it means okay to got to describe the shot remember some people didn't watch it i know i know (laughs) so i i I wrote it down bart simpson for example unable to attend so this is and this is where we get into the deacons. Uh, but of course, the directors are the Coen brothers, so they conceived of the shot. But it's just perfectly uh, executed. People should know going forward it's from a this hard episode on, there will be a lot more parsing of individual shots. Yeah, because we worship the work of Roger Deakins as much as we worship the work of the Coens themselves. Their collaboration, like their ty- so he's gonna, the third brother. He's gonna, the Cohen brother brother. We may even add a spectra called Shot Talk or something. Yeah, something like yeah, that. Because for Hudsucker, it seems so, necessary. So this film looks great, but here's the sequence I'm talking about. Uh, it's, a sh- it's, it's when they, uh, Audrey and Fink, have sex. It's a shot of feet, and then it moves to the bed, and then moves to a chair, and then moves, and you hear the audio of them getting at it. You go into the bathroom, you see a sink, and then the camera goes down the drain. And if you look very closely, you can see the sheriff from Blood Simple lying dead <laughs> under the sink. And yeah. a fan just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so, the re- so watch that shot because two things. One, uh, as a cinematographer, I've I've spent a lot of time and hours behind a camera, and there's a lot of you know doodads and dollies and you know things and you know making sure you rack focus correctly. It's a whole fucking orchestra of people uh, involved to make the shot work. It is a very hard shot. Just take mm-hmm. my word for it. The the choosing of the lens all the way down to the physical machinations of turning the knobs uh, made this orchestra happen. So that's one thing. But that's not that interesting. It that's only matters cool. if it means. What does it mean? Yeah. So here's what I think. So People consider it the most inscrutable. People always fall into two camps on this shot. Either they go... I guess it just means like dick going into vagina because the lens that's what goes I meant into by the, the crass quote, Yeah. Or they can't figure out what it means. Or it takes a lot of thought. If if Fink really is symbolically Dante's pilgrim, mm-hmm. and this is the moment right before uh, we, you know, frame back up after this, he go we go into the drain, and Audrey's dead and has been and apparently was murdered by Munt. I mean, like, what? I think the only assumption we can make is John Goodman sneaked over and murdered and killed her, her to punish him, like, yeah, to begin this sequence of events. That's the only thing we can assume. Yeah. Otherwise, Fink is just... Like, it just doesn't make sense. Otherwise, yeah, the, like, the devil all, finally pulled the trigger yeah, on this exactly. guy he's been toying with. Uh, so the symbolic nature of this shot to me is that it's not just about, like, 
So like the Friday 13th kind of thing, you have sex and then you're dead. No, it's not that. It's not about his like signing over his life by making this betrayal of this other writer that he supposedly thought he was going right. to, he loved, but found the real writer and is like, now they're making love. And that means that he's dead. No, no, no. I don't think that's, that's it. I, I think th- there's tons of levels. Cause there's also the more obvious, like his life is about to go down the drain the very sure. next day. That's a dumb one. Moving on. There's also, if you notice, after that shot, it does crossfade to a shot of just in pipe interiors with echoey sound. Yes. And so I think it could also be we're literally physically seeing the sound of them fucking reaching John Goodman, mm-hmm. which leads to his decision to go kill her. Right. Which So is, it could also literally be a meaningful shot. I think it's a symbolic sign of uh, him making the choice to... Like so, if his sin is egotism, if mm-hmm. he is uh, he's prideful, and all that, uh, what this moment is is that he had a chance to recorrect that sin. Well, because as they begin, as to bone, God is listening, yeah, he could have not sinned. Oh, and he could have said something interesting. I have a he different have, interpretation. He could have told her. He could have told Charlie. He could have told anyone, literally right. anyone. But instead, he lived his own within the myth of Barton Fink, where he deserves the girl, and he is now Bill Mayhew. Oh, goody! We totally disagree. I love when that happens. Oh, awesome. good. Because this is probably one of the only films where it's vague enough that that can happen. So I thought when his making love of her is one of the only times that he is engaged with life and doing what he's supposed to be doing. Because I do think that for me, okay, the sink shot, I interpret the sink shot as a part of a broader strategy of shots because there are many other shots in this movie that zoom in for way too long to the point where you're obviously supposed to notice and think about it on a tiny detail that means nothing. For example, they zoom in on his typewriter, but to the point where you're looking at the detail on the screw on the head of the thing that types, and it gets out of focus, and it's like, why are we zooming in so long on this? And it does the same thing with the drain, and the opening shot, the credits shot of this movie, is the wallpaper, zooming in on the wallpaper, which incidentally, when it finally zooms in, you realize that the wallpaper pattern looks very much like flames. Hell hotel. Hell hotel. But... Because of that, Ferris Bueller did not invent this technique. I think, <laughs> I think it's symbolically the same, too. I think it's about how... Forest and trees. There are moments, right. We spend most of our lives, even the writers who claim that all they're trying to do is notice reality. Most of the time, you're blinded by your mind and your chattering thoughts and perceptions and misperceptions every once in a while, and the postcard moment is the same. There's a beautiful moment where you're fully present, and that's what he should be mining for material because that's when you're actually experiencing life. And I'll just say a lot of people experience that feeling during orgasm, (laughs) like with someone that he respects and admires and feels like he's developing love feelings for. The first time you make love with that person, I could imagine that... Because the score from the postcard scenes plays when they start making love. That's my clue. I, yeah, I disagree. Okay. Because I think so. All I thought those... zooming into the drain was yet again saying like, while he's boning, he's more present than he's been in many hours. I think it's pointing out, uh, just like Daniel too, 
uh, I think it's pointing out that for a writer or someone who's a creator, they fixate on the wrong thing, and that's why it gets out of focus. So he is fixating on his own myth of like he is a great writer who deserves to be with her, and that is an unforgivable sin. Just like is focusing it? on the type because Mayhew does not deserve her objectively. Yes, it's still he, a sin. You no, think? no, no, no. It's oh. a, she's replacing one Mayhew with another to me. Uh, he she, would treat. He wouldn't hit her. That's, that's right. Different. That's right. He's he's a more empathetic one, but he still believes his own. He still believes in his own like mythos. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Mayhew does. Mayhew represents the writer who has decided it's all bullshit. Finally. Right. He's yeah. in a, in a way he kind of is a, a like a opposite reflection. You know, right. Like a, he's his foil. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But like to me, the reason that they focus on the typewriting is not because like. I do know what you're saying where it's like there is one thing that's true about this machination of a typewriter is that this you push a thing and this happens. So just focus on us like meditate on the humbleness of a keystroke that is different from the macro, you know, plan of like, you know, what are we saying with this typewriter? Uh, he's just, you can just be an idiot tapping, uh, doesn't mean you're going to write Shakespeare, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, but I think that the point of the film is to point out that Fink has these two things reversed. He, th he's putting the cart in front of the Fink. <laughs> 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 he, uh, he is thinking that he will just make something happen. Amazing. And he gets bogged down on the small details of how those things look and feel and operate and how he deserves better because everything is wrote to him. He's like these literary types, even though he himself is a literary type. But he's like, but I'm one of the good ones, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, I think that's because he doesn't actually understand what it means to be a, like loyal to a thing. He only knows... Or how to be present, he, truly. He, he, he is above society looking at society, but he thinks he's better than... Uh, he thinks he's a god, in other words. And I think that the Coens probably fear that about themselves. Like, even if they don't feel that it that they are, you fear getting out of touch. You fear being a fucking phony if you care about art. Right. You want to be one foot in your head making art, but you really want one foot planted in real life so that you are plugged into real things that are happening. Right. Because no matter how fanciful your story, the underpinning that makes it connect to other human beings is like, authentic experience right. and like understanding of shit right because you can be a, like an art critic and look at something like warhol and say how brilliant it is because he's fucking with art yeah. concepts and then you could also be an art critic and understand that and from an even more meta level say that's just a phony rendition of like you think that's art you know like mm -hmm. so the it's it's that uh i think i've mentioned this in podcasts like probably more than once now uh it's that one political cartoon i think from the new yorker where the guy's standing on like just a few books and he's it's a wall and then the second paint is he's standing on even more books and he can see like a dilapidated city that's been bombed mm -hmm. and then he stands on even more books in the third pane and he sees clouds like now he's on a tower of books mm -hmm. kind of i think hinting at the I, the nature of knowledge is that you learn a little and you learn 
nothing really at all. And then you learn a little more and then you see like, Oh, life is tragic. And then you learn even more and you say life's beautiful. And I think, well, it continues to be tragic at the same time. as I think that if there was more pains to like, that's the only thing that would improve that comic or that political cartoon is that it never ends. Uh, Right. It just oscillates between tragic and comic. The New Yorker doesn't tend to run comics Comics that are of indefinite length. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, I'll tell you this, uh, Here's the thing about this movie is that it's about drains. It's about mm-hmm. it's it's about the directionality of down. A mosquito is a drain. That's a metaphor for hell and all right. that. We get it. But uh, ultimately, it's about uh, you know like this descent into hell and like how you how your metal is kind of tested. Yeah. And he just is not up to. And stuff. I think imposter syndrome. If you look at it from the metal level, meaning Barton Fink is what the Coen brothers feel when they feel negatively about what they are, like our arts bullshit. We're just phony. Barton Fink is that, uh, I'll show you the life of the mind. And by the way, the Coen brothers will not confirm or deny any of these interpretations. No, they're They're so fucking coy about this movie. And it, it burns me up. I actually found interviews where they say things that I'm like, that's a lie. You're just no, they fucking li- they're, with us. They're, yeah. They liar. They're yeah. liars. They're, they're, I have no problem with it because I'm just like, all right, that's how you want. Because that's yeah. that's a fine tactic. You know, it's it's whatever. I mean, it also is the same people who, when they won the their second Academy Award for, I think it was Fargo, they just went up because they already said everything they wanted to say in the first Academy Award speech. And then they won for writing or directing or whatever, yeah. and, or and they just go thank you and bye. <laughs> yeah, you know it's like they're oh, intentionally that gets so cryptic. Oh. Yeah, and I love no, it because no, I no. don't like anyone who doesn't give a fuck about the Oscars. Oh yeah, I yeah. respect no, no, a I, lot because uh, fuck the Oscars. I typically don't watch the Oscars. Um, did you notice a little nice one, uh, Chet? Because everyone shines their shoes every night. Functionally, it just gives Charlie another excuse to burst into his room mm-hmm. because their shoes get swapped. And uh, for a moment, Barton Fink is wearing Charlie's shoes, and he can write. Then when Charlie comes in and says, we have the wrong shoes, and they switch, he can't again. He can't again. So, so walking, a mile, walking a mile in another man's shoes, shoes would have also helped, but you forewent that. Yeah. Uh, and that reminds me, just because we were just talking about the Oscars, too. Uh, wow, this, this podcast is turning a lot more self-aware. But, I mean, that's... <laughs> in the, um, so a very Barton Fink thing to do is what I just did, which is to make a meal out of the idea that like Abe Epperson doesn't like the Oscars. Mm-hmm. If I were to write a picture that that was the point, yeah, I would be Barton Fink, right? right because yeah. I'd be a guy who would be like, "You're you're you're misunderstanding the point of things mm-hmm. and overemphasizing the machinations of the real big story," and you think that you're interesting because you're counterculture oh is and, that, and because and so you have, like i'm doing what our protagonist is doing and because you have interior pain like he says well he's around people suffering much much worse several times i have pain most people don't understand right like he fetishizes his pain right. in a way that he thinks it makes him special i'm somehow smarter i'm and somehow it, more emotive if you've heard our other small beans show tales from the pit 
having internal pain is not special. It does no, not make it's you not. special. It's not. It's one of the goals of that show is to normalize that shit. Yeah, yeah. What is it? Life is suffering? I can't remember. Yeah. Some very famous man said something Life's like a that. beach and then you die, <laughs> I think. Life's a beach. Uh, Life's just a bowl full of cherries, but mine's the pits. Uh, uh, I want to talk about that ending, too, because what does that ending mean? Can we talk about the ending last, then? Because I have a Gatling gun of things that aren't really pedagogy, but they're like gems of lines that that should not go unrecorded. Mm, mm. Um, I love how Lipnick talks, and I think they do nail... Something we didn't really say is... And we glossed over Tony Shalhoub, which is a shame, and I don't want to dig too much into it because a bunch happens. Geisler, geezer. But in the middle, they do a great job of depicting how confusing and weird it is to go through the Hollywood system where Lipnick tells him, this is the most important script to us. Please take care. And then his assistant says, just crap it out. He doesn't care. Also, he won't even read it for eight weeks. And then two weeks later, the same guy comes back and goes, where's that script? It's super important now. Like... All that shit is handled masterfully. It's just, yeah, it's uh, at the whims of farce. whatever. Yeah, it's a farce. And yeah. part of that is Lipnick talks so fast all the time. And my favorite example, and changes topics to the point where you're dazed. One of my uh, things is, uh, oh, and also don't worry about being a Jew. I mean, no one minds that you're a Jew out here. I'm the biggest Jew in this town. I don't mean my dick is bigger than yours. It's not a sexual thing. Do you want a coffee? <laughs> Wait, like, that's a line. Is this Tony Shalhoub? No, no, Lipnick. This? this is uh, this is Lerner. Yeah, yeah so I'm yeah, saying yeah, Lipnick okay. always does. That's but, a quintessential example. Uh, uh, Tony Shalhoub also has that speech pattern. Is well, but Tony Shalhoub's thing also is he's a fucking ball breaker. Like he's co- every other word is cocksucker. Yeah, and shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And I also he sees Barton Fink and he goes. You want to be an Indian? We could always use more Indians. We're shooting a picture right now. And he goes, very pretentious. I'm a writer. You'd be a writer in an Indian. Like, yeah, don't give a shit. Um, and I love how uh, his his secretary mispronounces his name. Every time. Because uh, he's, to use another reference, because I believe that uh, Mayhew's based on Faulkner. Um, and I... Or Hemingway, but Faulkner probably, uh, because a lot of what they're talking about is about how Hollywood is all sound and fury, right? Yeah. So it's just this idea that he's his name doesn't matter. He's just this guy who's just preaching to a choir, uh, of a ruined L- choir. to a ruined choir of L.A. and just saying like, "You do this now. You do this now. You do this now. These are barking orders. I'm just a cog in the system." Well, when he watches the screener of the other wrestling movie, which is called Devil on the Mat, A, it masterfully shows how depressingly vapid he feels like this thing he's being forced yeah. to do is because it's dailies, so it's the same shot over and over. And right. it's a really shitty shot of a guy coming forward and saying, I will destroy you, and then pinning a guy. Right. So it's, it's such good editing. It accelerates to the point where he's just staring at an image of, a man getting pinned, 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 pinned. Yeah. I cannot win. Like, life is going to fuck you. Yeah. Devil on the mat. Yep. Devil on the mat. Uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> I don't um, have anything to add to that. That is exactly right. Well, what were you, but before that, the chunk you were saying about Faulkner. 
Oh, and the Hollywood system also really was worth digging into. Uh, so I think that uh, the sound and the fury, mm-hmm. which is a Faulkner book, right, 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 uh, is uh, one of the, r- the parallels that I thought of because I think that um, uh, Ben Geisler, played by Tony Schlup, uh, who, by is, the way, drinks milk and whiskey right. at a breakfast meeting. Right. Really out of weird. separate glasses. Yeah, really weird. <laughs> um, just this random nonsense chaos of like this cavalcade that is L.A. Uh, and Hollywood, I guess, really, um, of making moving pictures. You know, like uh, the, the this idea that it is phony is like the Holden Caulfield version of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the Faulkner version of it is that like, yeah, these guys are phonies, but they also do have like an angle in it. And that's a truth as well. Mm -hmm. Like, so these literary types on one side, uh, the common man on another side, and then these industry types on a third side, and uh, it's kind of saying that they're all obeying the same kind of nonsense. And it's nihilistic and in the sense to each other. that I think it's also nihilistic in the sense the movie seems to be saying, if you think you make serious art, you're overvaluing how important you are. If you think you make comedy, you're overvaluing everyone's. None of this matters anyway, yeah. anyway. You're, so like, don't even strive for even your masterpiece doesn't fucking matter because right. nothing does. If you make a podcast about the Coen brothers, yeah. you're overvaluing yourself. Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so more like random things. Oh, I got a few too. Uh, this just underlines the thesis yet again, but I did think it's a beautiful resonant line to end a scene on when Mayhew, when Barton Fink witnesses Mayhew hit Audrey and wants to like fight him and she stops him and he says, well, fuck him then. He's just a write-off. Like he's worthless as a human being. Right. And she says, you can't have empathy for him. And he says, no, why should I have empathy for him? And she says, empathy requires understanding and walks away. And the last line of the scene is he goes, what? What don't I understand? I just think it's a great encapsulation again of like the ear infection of like, Empathy requires understanding. What? What's to understand? Here's my play. Isn't it great? Yeah. (laughs) So the best joke that the devil ever pulled... Was convincing Uh, us Kevin Spacey was a chill chill dude. dude. (laughs) Uh, Is that this is a movie about uh, accolades. This is a movie about self-worth and the thinking you're better than you are. And thinking you have a... You're streamlining the secret truths of the universe. Uh, this is the first film to win all three major awards on the indie circuit, the Palme d'Or, Best Director, and Best Actor. So this masterpiece about how masterpieces are phony is considered a masterpiece. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a sick fucking joke it's that so only God meta. could write. Right. It's so fucking it's meta. So, it's like thematic on a, like you're outside of the movie and it's still thematic. It's a symbolic, artistic inaccessible movie about how making that kind of movie is stupid stupid and yet it's great and it's lauded for it (laughs) the laurels are on their heads the fucking cone brothers hail caesar my friend the fucking cone brothers (laughs) uh so here's some little tiny trivia uh parts by john well this is not how to do that stuff oh yeah okay well i mean I mean, I don't want to I don't want to leave before I have a couple more pedagogy like questions for you. Keep thrown. Okay, because if you're getting into trivia land, that's different. Um, 
First of all, I think how, like in Raising Arizona, the script is just so strong. Some lines beg to be encapsulated. Oh, yeah. This is not a comedy, but the detectives questioning Barton Fink scene is so fucking funny. Oh. Because it's him talking to the opposite of dude's that respect filmmakers. Right. They, it's just everything that just gives the facts, him status yeah. makes them think he's a pansy-ass loser. Yeah. Um, so he goes, they're hostile, they treat him like he's pretentious, and he says, oh, don't worry, see, I respect working men like you. And he goes, oh, Jesus, ain't that a load off? <laughs> ain't that a load off? Then they show him a mugshot of Goodman and say, do you know him? And he, say, he says, yeah, he's uh, Charlie Meadows. And he goes, yeah, and I'm Buck Rogers. His name's actually Carl Munt, as in Mad Mad Munt. He's a little funny in the head. Likes to shotgun people and decapitate them. Yeah, he's funny that way. <laughs> he's funny that way. And then the other guy goes... <laughs> That's right. He's yeah. funny that way. The other guy goes, Yeah, he just killed his ear, nose, and throat man, all of which are now missing. Well, he still had most of his throat. Physician, heal thyself. Good fucking luck with no fucking head. <laughs> And then he goes, then we found another body. Nice tits, no head. Know anyone who fits that description, but, you know, with the head still on? <laughs> like, they're awful men, but it's They're awful, funny. but they, they immediately feel like a Simpsons character. And then he goes, well, I do know one thing about Charlie Meadows, and I hope this is helpful. He said he really likes John Oakey pictures. Right. Who's an old right. actor. And he goes, that's not helpful. See my partner there? Note how he's not writing it down. <laughs> 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 because these guys are st- they're just the facts they just yeah. want to understand what's going on and in a way that is what screenwriters should do is just right inspection of reality and they have no they don't care they they don't feel big if they get a lead they yeah. just start churning out you know the fucking hits constantly <laughs> Charlie's final lines, I think, are important. Just I'll let people analyze them on their own. I'm not a madman. I'm not mad at anyone. Honest. Most people I just feel sorry for. It tears me up inside to think about what they're going through, how trapped they are. I understand it. I feel for them, so I try and help them out. Yeah, I know what it feels like when life goes bad. Front office puts you through hell, Bart. So I help people out. Just wish someone would do as much for me. Jesus is hot. Sometimes I want to crawl out of my own skin. Which I think the last line is just like creepiness uh, coming in. Yeah. And um, then he says, but why me? And he says, because you don't I mean, listen. Now that I hear that, it, it's actually a lot more clear to me that John Goodman is the devil. That is the devil's just, that's the only time we hear the devil's justification because for why he the does. The front office is God. Yes. So in a way, and Chet he says, is God. Literally, the front office puts you through hell. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and to me, that makes the uh, that makes the crawling out of the skin a little bit more than just a creepy line. Because yeah. if we remember, Lucifer was a seraphim, an angel who wanted more. And if you remember in Dante's Inferno, at the bottom level, it's a frozen pit where the devil's chewing right. on like Judas and two other dudes. Treasoners. But the important point is, the devil is also being punished. Right. In some interpretations of hell, hell is just as bad for the devil because he's suffering as a sinning angel. And I think that's the devil we have here because he says, come on, Barton, you think you know pain because I made your life hell? Look around this dump. I live here. You're just a tourist with a typewriter. Do you not understand that? And you come to my home, 
that's so hot and you complain to them that I'm making too much, much noise yeah. in my home? Yeah. It's... And he says, I'm sorry. And he says, don't be. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you, you've done, your words mean nothing. Your actions yeah. spoke. Then he stands up and leaves and says, I'll be next door if you need me. Oh, by the way, I lied. That package isn't mine. <laughs> Which is like basically just confirming that's a hit. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so what I wanted to ask you is, it's got to mean something. When the devil destroys the world, our world, why is his catchphrase, I will show you the life of the mind? That's what John Goodman screams repeatedly in the final killing spree. Only. Ex- I, he doesn't say anything else until he says Heil Hitler at the I end. I am... Not super confident that Sorry, I have. I'm wrong. It's just for correction's sake. He says over and over, look upon me. me. I will show you the life of the mind. Yeah. I will show you the life of the mind. Yes. Look upon me. I'll show you the life of the mind. Uh, I, I mean, I'm kind of confident about it, mm-hmm. but like, honestly, uh, that one, that line has always been something that I've kind of like, I, I'm sure you have, you might have a different opinion, and if you do, like, those are probably my two opinions that I oscillate between. <laughs> uh, but my, to hazard guess, my first, you know, throw is uh, the life of the mind, obviously, is you living your life as someone who is a creator or someone who is a thinker, right? Mm-hmm. The mind. So that's obvious. So it's yeah. like the life of the mind is someone who walks down a path uh, in their life uh, as one who is a thinker. You, I will show you the life of the mind means that like you haven't done it correctly. I will show you like a teacher t- teaches a student. I will learn you. But then he blows your head off. So which is, is the life of the mind, which is, is that like the li- you can't, it's what unknowable. What does that mean to the equation? It's unknowable. It's, okay. it's like, uh, you know what it is? It's Indiana Jones when the Nazis look at the Ark. It's to fully to, know life To know God you. is to destroy you. It's to have your wax face so melt <laughs> when Yeah, exactly. So when I uh, look upon me, mm-hmm. uh, I will show you the life of the mind, which means it is a unending process that you will never truly understand fully rec- that is yeah. fu- okay. fully and self-annihilistic fully recognize me as the devil and in doing so recognize that the human brain can't comprehend like you can't comprehend just your recognizing own, me yeah. obliterates you you yeah. will never understand your own intelligence and what or things like pain why is yeah. emotional pain is it important is it not yeah and the reason is because you're an egotist just like the rest of us you are someone who believes that you have something to say and i guess that makes and sense and there is nothing oh, to shit. say cuz he says he wishes people could crawl out of their skin right so it's like you can't not be an egotist because you're not a soul you're trapped in a flesh body flesh bodies have demands they get drunk they get and depressed limitations exactly yeah. they get full of themselves and so he, as the devil, really feels he's helping you by getting that body out of there. Just get it right out. Why don't you just go have the life of the mind? I'll handle the body. I will have to handle this for you, Barton. I'll take the body out of here. I'll remove that <laughs> physical And I'll aspect. leave you with a box, and inside it is inspiration. And in it, I will leave you in the spiritual wake of you possibly murdering someone. Right. Well, because I also think... Which will eat you The devil to would death. say, if you want to know what life is... You got to wade through the shit too. Mm-hmm. 
And that's Barton's chance to wade through the shit. <laughs> Which makes the ending shot. Yes. We're wrapping up pedagogy oh my with God. maybe the hardest to explain symbol throughout, which is this postcard image. And if I may provide context, because I think you'll provide a better explanation of it. Um, I just want to be clear about what happens because I think the dialogue could be important too. We know Barton's damned for all time. He's walking on the beach barefoot. A woman approaches. He sees her. She calls out, but he can't hear what she says over the waves. I'm saying that like it's important because it could be, but I don't know if it is. He says, what? She says, I said it's a beautiful day. Ooh, okay, maybe because it's his first attempt to ever hear someone, right? Okay, okay, he actually tried I'm to... nodding for podcast listeners I've, this whole time. That like, wasn't my realization, that is a key. by the way. Abe's eyes transmitted, he was like, looked in my eyes and was like, you idiot, that's what it means. <laughs> Um, obviously it's his first attempt in the movie ever to hear someone. So yeah, I can't hear you. What did you say? And she says, I said, it is a beautiful day. And he says, yes, it is. And she says, what's in the box? <laughs> what's in the box? What's in the box? And he says, I don't know. And she says, but isn't it yours? And he says, I don't know. Um, then he, then there's a long pause where she looks at him like, that's a weird thing to say. And he says, you're very beautiful. Are you in pictures? And she says, don't be silly. Then she turns around and recreates the pose so that she's literally in, in a pictures. Picture. Yeah. yeah. But don't be silly. So what is it? I, th- I, have, an- I have something for that. Throw it I want to hear all yours because I gave the context. Uh, this is one of the more complex images. So I may not be the best person to say it, but I do believe, it, you know, if to be Barton Fink for a second, I do think I I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's perfectly the right answer, and I don't think the Coens do either. Is it a sublime moment? Like this is, is he good in that moment? Is that good? He's changed. He is changed tactic. in minor ways. So the reason that it's important that I think that he doesn't they don't hear each other first and then he's literally listening. He puts in effort to hear what a stranger yeah. says. Yeah. So in that regard, yes, mm-hmm. he has changed his tactic. He's stopped talking. He said twice now, I don't know, which is probably the most, the Humble wisest thing he could say. Yeah. Wisest words in, you know, mm-hmm. the English language is right. I do not know. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't, reflect on it in a way he just witnesses it so the like as you like pointed out and it's like really good he she's literally in the picture i never even thought of that that's fucking amazing. are you in pictures <laughs> are you in pictures yeah. you, well you're in one that i that i know yeah it burned down though uh <laughs> so she is something that's real mm-hmm. she's basking in the glory of like he is admiring the glory that she's basking in, which is also she's a part of. It's important to note the focus of the shot, because her face is turned away. The focus of the shot is not really the beauty of the female form. It's the beauty of the ocean and the sun. It's all the things. She's your stand-in. Yeah. Like, she's there experiencing it. You're, you're experiencing you're her experience. It. Yeah, exactly. Points exactly. to the madness. Well yeah. said. Yeah. Experiencing someone else's experience. Which is, Which is the act of writing problem. film. Yeah. And it's also what filmmaking is. And it's his problem because he, he tr- he's trying to 
reduplicate the experiences of something he knows nothing about, the common man. To um, quote Hutsucker Proxy. Right. <laughs> only a fool pretends to know something about something he knows nothing about. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I think what this moment is, is that it is trying to be kind of uplifting in a way by saying that it's he has changed, he's trying something new, and he's now kind of seeking seeing those secret truths of the universe. But the film ends before that we know if that resonates or not. So we still haven't been able to change There's no our judgment on Barton. Fink. There is no reaction shot of whether he absorbed this moment. Yeah. It just zooms it in on the moment and you know he's present there. He has the opportunity to see this. In fact, it's yeah. the most egotistical shot of the Coen brothers career, in my opinion, because it's like them saying that they filmed something that was actually real and whether our main character or protagonist sees it or not, it, was real. I was going to say, I feel like because in a way he is them, their psychological selves, yep, and that's them. they couldn't bring it to be fully nihilistic. They give themselves a sliver of hope at the end. Right. Like the spirit that is Barton Fink has the tools around him yeah. to improve if he needs to. I showed you the door. I hope you walk through it. And also I think the door, because I know a sequence you love is maybe the most efficiently anyone's ever traveled across country in a film is he's in New York, slow crossfade to a wave crashing on a beach, slow crossfade to the hotel. And you know, he's in LA. Yeah. No one has to say anything. No one has to say anything. It's just the during city. this last beach sequence, that shot is also repeated right. before he even meets her. He sees that. So I was wondering if that shot is the gateway to hell, that, that shot oh. of the thing crashing on the rock is the gateway to hell. So, just at the end of the movie, he escapes back out of hell into the real world, and the last scene takes place in the real world. Oh, interesting. Maybe. Yeah, that's... Yeah. That, I never... I, I actually thought the waves meant something different. I think the waves were of more of a, like... The, the wave and the rock do not personify anyone. They're mm -hmm. just a uh, bombastic, chaotic reaction about something that yeah. is in motion. But they could be... a. The, the threshold it could be la it could be barton fink right. it could be all that but i i always thought of it as more of a, a you know meditation on motion yeah just the idea of like here we are you're now literally thrown against a rock a rock it is what's happening to him yeah. so time's arrow is essentially making but then look at how learn things now look at the life of the mind at work then when you see it at the end it's a soothing image you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it is. It's like you've become this hardened rock, but at least a wave is washing over you. Mm -hmm. Like you can change everything based on your inner life. Well, it's the Shakespeare sonnet. Absolutely. I hope you understand is um, what he's saying. Yeah. That how the grandeur of beauty in its death and its life and its turning, the leaves turning yellow. and The two-sided pieces of long text definitely support each other. Because in the Bible quote is the flip side of that coin. It's saying, and if you can't make us understand, don't try because you're don't just try. pumping out shit. Yeah. Yep. Um, so more, this ending one, scene could go forever. I want one, one more thing. Well, I want to say one thing about the, the ending scene. The last like two seconds of the film. Oh, but I'm not done unpacking the lady on All the right, beach cool. yet. Okay. Keep going. Um, I think... He says, okay, so she asked him three questions, and you're right, two are, I don't know, which is a sign of humility. The first one is, it's a beautiful day. Yes, it is. So he does, I feel like it's a good moment in that sense that, 
And that's, again, this is only if you buy my idea that the slow zooms are about those rare moments that you're truly present. And that might be me projecting my beliefs on the film. But if they are, it would work with that. Like, oh, it's a beautiful day. Oh, I'm not just seeing it in a postcard and trying to replicate it on a typewriter. I'm sitting on the real beach. It really in the is day. a beautiful day. Yes. Then I really like the interchange. What's in the box? I don't know. But we know that it's probably a decapitated head, right? Right. Is it yours? I don't know. And I think that's saying, because this is a quintessential philosophical question. No, no, no. I think it's a, a quintessential philosophical question. Are you culpable for the results of your actions, given that your actions ripple out infinitely and are unpredictable, which is a nihilist philosophy? Meaning, that's a head? That's a woman you loved who got decapitated? Are you responsible? I don't know. How do you parse culpability? Could I have taken a sequence of actions where she wouldn't get decapitated? Yes. Yes. At what percentage is who to blame? Did I personally decapitate her? No. I, I can't. I, I don't. Can't. Yeah, so they, I like that. And I feel like that's the same as saying, like, are you the author of your acts? And therefore, are you the owner of your art? Are you the flesh body individual, the owner of the art? Not really. The once the art, or are you? Because it's intrinsic to you. It's the question, yeah. yeah. And then the last line, I just like, don't be silly. Because be silly. that's it's all so he's good. ever tried to do to a fault. He wants to be perceived, flash uh, foreshadowing, as a serious man. And that's what makes him fucking pretentious. Also, the question, are you in the pictures, kind of has like a call and response second question if it was like yeah which is well I, i'm a I'm writer, writer but instead he neglects to say that which he never has and before. that's why she says she calls him silly is that like there's this one little knee-jerk thing of he's like well i do have a little bit of clout and i am a little bit special yeah so uh you in the pictures yeah. Because you're beautiful. So don't be silly could be a shut. It's both a shutdown and also like. Right. I just think it's funny. It's a beautiful day and I'm also an egotist still. So it's And don't be silly has been his motto that it was engraved on his heart yeah. the whole movie. And in a way she is kind of like not. She represents this muse, but she's actually the wisest person in the whole movie. Uh, so the last two seconds. Just by that statement. Yeah. Just like don't right. be silly. Just as a complete like denial of that egotism it's the most basic way to say like why are you taking everything in Stop. your life so seriously yeah. yeah why am i so serious so the last two seconds of the film just a trivia little bit uh they did not plan the seagull oh the seagull flies by in that, the, and it is in the same position as the postcard in the hotel it is, uh, there's an interview with them it is they say the most amazing thing that's ever happened to them on any set ever of all time. Like it's up there with like Sigourney Weaver making a basket or that guy throwing a 90 mile an hour pitch and killing a seagull. Yeah. Randy <laughs> Johnson, the big <laughs> unit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is not only like perfectly framed, but also like, so you can't give them any credit because they didn't plan it. So right. they have no authorship over it. I think it was God saying, don't be nihilist. I <laughs> yeah. uh, but the idea of a seagull taking a plunge into the sea to eat some fish mm -hmm. uh, as like a symbol of life and like having to go downward yeah. uh, in order to, to go upward yeah. uh, is once again, 
they didn't plan this. This is all nonsense. But like, but it's perfect. It's kind of perfect in a way. Like it. Like how did they get away with that? It's it's almost like some bean <laughs> told the Cone Brothers that they're not Barton Fink. It's Deacons. Yeah, it's Deacons, Deacons made it Deacons happen. Deacons just willed it into existence. Um, does that take us to how do you do that? Yeah. All right. A little trivia as our cool down from this intense marathon jog. <gasps> And then we'll be out. But uh, w- the first trivia I have to call out, that was the one before we recorded that made me go, holy shit, but I didn't want to tell you yet. Written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, after a trip to see Baby Boom while suffering with writer's block while writing Miller's Crossing. So I just want to point out... What's Baby Boom? That Baby Boom is a 1987 movie, and here's the plot synopsis on IMDb. J.C. Wyatt is a successful New York businesswoman known around town as the Tiger Lady. She gets news of an inheritance, but it turns out not to be money, but a baby girl. At first, she doesn't accept until the lady that gives the baby to her has to catch a flight. J.C. is now stuck with an annoying baby girl. Her boyfriend doesn't like the idea of a baby living with them and leaves her. J.C. has had enough of it, takes her baby to meet a family ready to adopt her, but as she walks away, she hears the baby cry and has to go back. She can't bring herself to abandon the baby. She leaves her high-powered lifestyle in New York in order to move to a two-story cottage in Vermont. When she arrives, the house needs a lot more repairs than she thought. She gets bored one day and makes some applesauce. Her baby loves it, so she decides to sell it in town. Pretty soon, everyone wants some of the baby sauce. JC hits it big and falls in love with a local veterinarian. They get married. So, they were working on a studio film. Then they went to see what sounds like a bottom of the barrel as vapid as it can be studio right. film. Like bad versions of Silver's tra- or Sullivan's Travels. And I like to think that they went home in a rage and were like, we have to write the opposite of Baby Boom right now. Right now. Yeah. It's kind of like that, that Wally moment that we had mm-hmm. that one night where we were just like, I don't know, I just got to I gotta say something. Talk I got yeah. to talk. Uh, yeah, that is a bad sounding, sounding movie. movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me because what I, what's interesting to me about that is the retribution arc, like that mm-hmm. she is, so she also goes downward. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's King Lear kind of thing. Yeah. There's a dark night of the soul and she goes upward through applesauce, I guess. <laughs> uh, and then meets a guy and like, no, don't are, try to connect these. It does a disservice. No, but they, to the but there there are things in their head that they're like that is a thing. But I I would imagine they're reacting against things. Oh they yes, saw. Yeah. but I think they're mimicking form though. They're mm. formalists, are they not? You know, yeah, like, right, they're right, always right, gonna true. think about the symmetry of like story structure, mm-hmm. and so I think that they, I mean, I don't know. There's something about the devil on the mat. There's a, it's such a very typical like to write a. a you know, boxing pitcher, uh, you know, you got a, your Rockies. Yeah. You know, you got your, you you got this idea of like this guy who's a common man and he's got to struggle like so many John McClane's to mm-hmm. be the best boy. Yeah. And so they're writing this anti, like this antithesis to it, mm-hmm. which is that your guy who is going to turmoil and be like on the, and you want him to succeed because he has a vision right. of something that could be great. He's not a good guy. 
So that's them saying like, fuck you, baby boom. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. You're, you're a fucking piece of shit that's <laughs> spinning falses. You're what Barton Fink is. Yeah. You are just reflecting onto the world, your hopes and dreams of your own ego and that you're special and you aren't. More trivia. More Frances tri- McDormand continues her streak. Mm. She is the female voice heard off camera on stage in the Broadway play. I just want to point out so far we're four for four with Frances. I believe she's in every single one, but I'm going to, I'm going to be a Francis tracker throughout this is podcast. She in Lady Killers? We'll wait and we'll find out. We'll right. remind ourselves. I don't think she is. Michael Lerner nominated for an Oscar for his role as Lipnick. Well-deserved. John Turturro, John Goodman, John Polito, and Steve Buscemi were all written with them in mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was crafted like a play with the cast in mind already. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like uh, that there's an interplay with, between him and W.P. Mayhew where he says, you know, you shouldn't drink all the time. I've never found it helps my writing. And he says, I found it helps my living or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And he says, have you ever heard the story of Solomon's Mammy? Which I had to look up, but that's the shorthand Read the book name. Book of Solomon. That's yeah. the shorthand name for the story of Bathsheba, where she seduces David. Right. So it's an implication that he knows that they're going to end up boning. Mm. Like he knows that Audrey's into Barton. You know what I mean? Chekhov's dick. Chekhov's dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jennifer Jason Lee auditioned for Audrey. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Campbell auditioned for a part, but he won't say which, and he didn't get it. Uh, and she didn't get it, but they remembered, like, they, she, they were like, she's too, she's good for it, but she's not, she's too young, mm-hmm. I think is what it was. That they were like, we got, we got to remember this woman. She's amazing. Yeah. She's just not right for this role uh, because Hudsucker later. At one point, this is the cra- This is so funny to me, but neither here nor there. Fink says to Charlie, because it's it's just a coincidence, that his play works are about common people like Charlie, and says that he quote hopes and dreams of the simple man one day becoming as noble as a king. The very same year, John Goodman released King Ralph, in which he's a common man who becomes the king. <laughs> uh, I hope that was. Like, yeah, that struck their desk. Carl um, Munt was the name of a real senator that they didn't like. So that's why that's the name of the serial killer. Oh, really? It's always nice. They like they. Yeah. They just m- murdered someone for antiquity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are we done? I, th- I don't the, I'm going to read something that I feel like we'll end up cutting because I don't know if I agree. I don't, it's also not trivia. It's like someone's theory online. Important symbolism about Barton is when he arrives at the hotel, he's superimposed on an image of the ocean, which is water. By the time he's checking out of there, the place is engulfed in flames, fire. Now cut that. No, it's like water so and what? Fire what does that mean? Care. Doesn't mean elemental anything. shit. Yeah, maybe sure. if they meant the middle and formed steam I mean, or something. It didn't it, mean it, I, we already talked about like how chaos and All forces. Right. So, so literally, not joking. Do cut this, whoever's editing this. Yeah, but let's. Uh, say let's rap rap okay well that's all i got for how to do that yeah i don't really yeah. i mean it really, was all pedagogy yeah all the time. dude this movie is to me 
just a meal of introspection. And it's Lynchian in this. Oh, by the way, watch Eraserhead. And I don't say that for no reason. I think there's comparison points. If you haven't seen Lynch's Eraserhead, watch that. Yeah. Get back to me on how much it traumatized you. And this is one movie where I'll shout out to people and say, I want to hear other interpretations Absolutely. of any of this stuff. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that goes kind of like all Coen Brother movies but this because they're so cryptic. This one's the widest, this like, one, fair game. And especially because it's kind of personal in yeah. the way that it's about a screenwriter, as we right. said uh, multiple times. I think that they're kind of transplanting their own insecurity into Barton Fink. Um, yeah, it's the only time they do that, though. They don't really make a lot of writing I mean, about writing, which is a good thing to avoid. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so if anyone has any opinions or thinks that we're wrong, just uh, throw that in, smash that like button, and throw it in the comments. No, we're all correct because that's how it's designed. But I want to hear your equally correct interpretation. I don't really care of the mosquito. What they think? Well, I'll be reading and responding. Abe won't. But uh, now you know. I'm probably which wrong. Host you like better. Yeah. Bye. Bye. We love you. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!